0: Many, many years ago, somebody said, I'm not sure of their motivation uh, or anything else. I don't remember who it was. Couldn't find out who it was. But somebody said when Satan was kicked out of heaven, he landed in the choir loft. (laughs) I take strong exception to that. I thought I'd get an amen from somebody over there. (coughs) Choir, thank you. I try not to miss a Sunday morning telling you that. You minister to my heart and to the hearts of the worshipers who've come. And the reason you do that, I believe, is because what you are doing is worship. It's not a performance. It's worship. And you share with us your worship. And I thank you for that. And those who play the instruments here, thank you here, back here. We appreciate your ministry. Every one of you. God bless you. I don't know where the devil did land, but it wasn't in the choir loft. Take your Bible and turn with me, please, to the book of Isaiah. This Sunday and at least next Sunday, I will be in this sixth chapter. Pray for me, if you will, please, because it has been some time since we have started on Sunday morning in a book study, and I plan to do that when I finish this series, which will be somewhat, uh, to, to some degree, about worship. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We belong to you because you have redeemed us. You have made us part of your family and we are grateful. Thank you for our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are many here this morning that need a word of encouragement. And I pray that you would do that for them in a way that only you can do. And then when the service draws to a close and we are... Leaving, I pray that uh, um, others might speak a word of encouragement to someone around where they're seated today. Again, our Father, we thank you for our guests. Bless them. May they know they're welcome here. Thank you. We open your word now and we pray the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to our hearts. May he be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Helen Keller was born june 27, eighteen eighty in Tuscumbia, Alabama. Before reaching her second birthday, she was stricken with a severe illness which left her blind, deaf, and unable to speak. Through the efforts of her parents when she was six years of age, Helen Keller became a student of a lady by the name of Anne Sullivan, who would remain her teacher for almost 50 years. Later, as she recounted her experiences, Helen Keller spoke of one particular life-changing event. Let me quote her words. It happened at the well house when I was holding a mug under a spout. and pumped water into it, and when the water gushed out into my hand, she kept spelling W-A-T-E-R into my hand with her fingers. Suddenly I understood and caught up with the first joy I had ever known since my illness. I reached out eagerly to Anne's hand, begging for new words to identify whatever objects I touched. Spark after spark flew from hand to hand. And from that well house, there walked two enraptured beings calling each other Helen and Anne. What a remarkable event. Four years in the life of this woman, she would speak of as being dark, black, nothing good. And here is this day. The whole world changed for Helen Keller. No longer was there only silence. Now she could communicate. Something altogether never before experienced, and it was of such magnitude that it changed her life forever it was a moment, someone said, of supreme insight. I believe the prophet Isaiah had a very similar type of experience. And in the sixth chapter of the book which bears his name, that story is unfolded for us. Now, we don't know exactly how old Isaiah was. There's a lot of speculation about it from 18, 19 to maybe 30. Generally speaking, most expositors settle and say he was approximately 25 years of age. But we have no way of dating that. That is a surmise. But there came a day, whatever year it was in his life, there came a day when instantaneously this man had opened before him a whole view of God. Also a view of himself. And then a view of his generation. There have been countless thousands of messages preached using that very same outline. That's what I'm going to work through, first part of this morning. It's spelled out, Isaiah 6, the first few verses of this chapter, one of the easiest sections in the Bible to outline, I believe. It's very clear. Isaiah just says, here's this, here's this, here's this. Here's the upward vision, here's the inward vision, and here's the outward vision. Those are the things that come out of the text You do not have to be a theologian. You do not have to be a preacher. You do not have to be a science school teacher. You can read them. Right there they are. That's where he is. And his story begins in verse 1 of chapter 6 with a vision of God, the glorified King. Verse 1 reads, and I want to just take the first few words of this verse. It reads, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, that he says King Uzziah's death does help us a little bit with some chronology. But that's not the main reason for it. We are told this about the year of King Uzziah's death, And this is the why of the vision that Isaiah had. It was because the earthly throne of David was empty. Uzziah had died. The earthly throne of David was empty. And that's the reason for the vision that's coming. It also gives us something of the flavor of Isaiah's day. Think about it, if you will, for a couple of moments. And the year of King Uzziah is dead. History, interestingly to me at least, records instances when monarchs and kings have died and it resulted in dancing in the streets. People were happy. The old despot was gone. But then history also records for us the other side. When a king or monarch passed away, and there was deep sorrow and mourning. Now, what's the difference? Well, usually it was because of the character of the one who had been in office. And so that leads to the question, what about Uzziah? What kind of man was Uzziah? I'm not going to ask you to turn back there, but you might make a note somewhere. If you want to read for yourself what Uzziah was like, go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. A whole chapter. About this man, Uzziah. He was a great man. He came to the throne when he was 16 years old. Just a lad. Can you imagine a 16 year old being on the throne in Israel? Or anywhere else for that matter? Just a child. Two amazing things ensued. One, he remained on that throne for 52 years, starting at 16. How he managed till he got to be a mature adult, I, I, I pondered this whole week. I don't know. Uh, good advisors, whatever. Good advice, whatever. I don't know. But from 16, he lasted 52 years on the throne. And the other amazing thing to me is, the writer of the book of Chronicles said he did, he did that which is right, said the Lord. Isn't that amazing? We learn from the Old Testament that Uzziah was obviously a man of great personal charisma. People loved him. They followed him joyfully. We are also told that he loved the soil. Under his administration, the agricultural economy flourished. He was a military genius. He organized the army. He trained new officers. Under his leadership, the people created new weapons, and they brought a new degree of security to the land. The city walls were fortified. New towers were built. Under his rule, new trade routes were opened up. And his accomplishments—those are just a few. His accomplishments—his accomplishments go on and on and on. The key to it, from First Chronicles, excuse me, Second Chronicles, is it says in chapter twenty-six, God prospered him. How was he able to do all these things? God prospered him. That's in verse five Verse seven of that same chapter. And 2 Chronicles tells us that God helped him against his enemies. And later on in 2 Chronicles, we read that he was marvelously helped by the Lord God until he was strong. Uzziah was such a great leader that some have even compared him to Solomon and David. Now, when you have an era of time like that, which goes on for so long, in this case, as I've indicated, for 52 years, people can slowly, almost imperceptibly, grow dependent upon such a king. That shouldn't come as a surprise. 52 years, a good man was ruling on the throne, and things were going very, very well. For 52 years, the farmers were happy. For 52 years, the military was happy. For 52 years, the business community was happy. You know, uh, we'd be hard-pressed to think of the name of any one of our presidents who could do that for 52 days, much less 52 years. <laughs> but the result was stability. The result was prosperity. And in times like that, particularly over an extended period of time like this, people, it, it, it's easy for people to begin to depend on the leader that they see. It's easy for people to come to trust and depend on the leader that they can see. But then, <clears throat> later on, 50 plus years, but later on, something went grievously wrong in the reign and in the life of Uzziah. He thought there's one more area that I need to control. And that's the temple. That's the temple. One day he walked into the temple and encountered the priests. And he let it be known that uh, he planned to offer sacrifices. The priest reminded him, that's Aaronic responsibility. That's the children of uh, of Aaron. That's their responsibility. It is not for you. The priest warned him, this isn't for you but he would not listen. He picked up the censer and indicated that he was going to offer sacrifice. I won't ask you to turn there, but I'd like to read some, some verses from 2 Chronicles so that you know what happened at that point. Bear with me. Listen for just a moment or two. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him and with him were 80 valiant priests. 80 valiant men. Just in passing, remember, this is somebody who'd been in office for 52 years. Who's going to oppose him? I don't know, but I I surmise that uh, when I read here with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, I think they had to be valiant men to oppose Uzziah. But they did. They did. Continuing on. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn <laughs> incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful. You will have no honor before the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censored, In his hand, for burning incense was enraged. Again, I can understand that, can't you? Probably he had been opposed very few times in his 52 years. And now, here is a priest, 80 of them, strong. And they are opposing him. And it says he was enraged. While he was enraged with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense, and Azariah the chief priest, And all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. They hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. He lived in a separate house, no longer in the palace. He lived in a separate house, being a leper, and was cut off from the house of the Lord, that is the temple. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, Jotham succeeded him in judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So, this is the last verse of chapter 26, So Uzziah slept with his fathers. They buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. And they said, He is a leper. And Jotham his son and king his place. After 52 years, there's one place I can't control or I haven't controlled yet. I will offer incense on the altar. He he well knew that that was an ironic ministry. That was for the priest to do. He knew that. But something went wrong. Grievously so in the life of Uzziah. He's dead. Isaiah 6 brings us to a funeral in the year of his death. Now, I have spent a few moments stressing all this background because I don't think we will understand Isaiah's experience if we don't understand the background against which it comes. Everyone must have been thinking and talking about Uzziah. About his leprosy about the fact that he had to leave the palace and couldn't return. That he had to go to live in a separate place and then of his death. Can you imagine after 52 years the disillusionment and the frustration of those people? They all had to have in their minds, I think anyway, the question, what now? What now? This man's gone. This man that many of them had only known as the king. They had never known another king. Certainly Isaiah had never known another king. And things had gone so well up until the end. Dead and shame. Disgrace. Dying an ignominious death. Isaiah chapter 6 opens on a doleful note. But then would you notice the next words? Isaiah has this marvelous upward vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, I want you to think about that with me for a couple of minutes. In the year King Uzziah's death, in the year of his death, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. What does that mean? Think about it with me. I wonder if Isaiah is telling us that uh, up until that moment, he'd never really seen the Lord. Perhaps he had gone through all the temple rituals, all the temple ceremonies, had done everything that faithful people were supposed to do. And had never seen the Lord. Could it be. Could it be. That Isaiah's vision. Had never risen higher than Uzziah. And this is the first moment. That Isaiah saw the Lord. I believe that's exactly. What's happened here. Isaiah says. I saw the Lord. And that changed his life. Forever. He was never the same after that. And then the words which follow describe Isaiah's vision. He continues in verse 1. Look at it. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Let me go on. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. and With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Did you just note a few of those things that are mentioned there? Isaiah sees the Lord and He's sitting on a throne, exalted, immense. That's verse 1b. He was attended by seraphim, verse 2. He was announced as perfectly holy in verse 3. His glory filled the whole earth, verse 3. Inanimate objects trembled before Him, In verse 4. And the temple was filled with smoke. Did you notice he saw the Lord sitting on a throne? Who sits on thrones? Kings. Was the nation's king dead? No. Uzziah was gone. Uzziah was gone. But the real king of Israel and Judah wasn't dead at all. In fact, he wasn't even sick. But the prophet's vision had been lifted from Uzziah to the real king. No longer did he look to Uzziah or to Jotham, his successor. But to God, the true king. The one who is king above all. He is high and lifted up. And his entourage fills the temple. Isaiah, I believe for the first time, for the first time in all of his life, was aware of the presence of a holy and living God. Verse 2 describes the angelic beings which fly around his throne. They are called seraphim. And they give us, I believe, a picture of worship. Hear me well. I want to say that again. I believe the seraphim give us a real, true picture of worship. They cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Imagine Isaiah, if you will, for a moment. Slip your feet into his sandals, as it were, if you can. To this point in his life, he had seen no more than an earth presided over by an earthly king, Uzziah. No doubt, like everyone else, he thought of prosperity. He had thought of armies. He had thought of trade routes. Uh, he had thought of wall cities. He had thought of agriculture. Isaiah thought of all those things and more. But now, now, he no longer is looking at those things. No more agriculture. No more armies. No more towers. No more new weapons. No more trade routes. No more agriculture. Now his eyesight is elevated, and he sees the kings and the Lord of Lords. Creator of all the earth. And the earth is filled with His glory. The earth is under His control. What a vision. What a vision. It had an impact on Isaiah. It changed his life. Changed his life. It leads to two other visions which we will take up, Lord willing, next Sunday. Now, don't close up, please. Question, what is worship? What is worship? I've got a section in my library of books, probably this area to this area, full of books on worship. I enjoy reading them. And I do find enlightenment there. I love to sit down with David, talk about it. What is worship? What comprises worship? Let me ask you. Did you get ready last night for worship? Or was Saturday night just the usual routine for you? You know, folks come to... A lot of folks go to church on Sunday morning and they haven't put in a liquor preparation. Haven't done a thing. Question. Did you do something last night to prepare you to come to worship this morning? Somebody who didn't is going to walk out of here this morning and before they get home they will say to somebody, well, I didn't get much out of that. And I want to tell you why. Why? Because you didn't prepare. you think the choir and musicians and the preacher are the only ones to prepare for worship? That accounts for the paucity of your worship experience. What were you thinking about on the way to church this morning? There are some mornings I stand either there or I'll push this door a little bit or the other and watch people when they're driving the parking lot. I love to do that. I love to do that. You know, a car comes into the parking lot... All four doors open, and everybody goes in all different directions. And once in a while, I can, if I were given to gambling, once in a while, I would wager there was an argument going on in that car before they got here. And we come into worship and we expect God to appear to us and give us revelations that, that cause that just lift us way up out of all this stuff, that we haven't prepared for it. One reason. We do not get a lot out of worship services because we haven't prepared to. What is worship? Is it a lofty building? Is it stained glass? Is it muted organ music? Is it soft lighting? Is it folks kneeling? Is it music done in Latin? Is it music done by a praise band at the top of their voice and to the maximum volume of their strings or whatever? Is it incense? What about candles? Is that what worship's all about? Is it a feeling? What is it? What is worship? Part of what I would say it is, and it's not a complete definition by any stretch of the imagination, it's an active response to God which declares His worth. An active response to God. Not to the preacher, not to my neighbor. It is an active response to God Almighty. It begins with seeing Him with the eye of faith. When you come in and sit down in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, what's in your heart? I'm not sure what all was in Isaiah's heart when he said in verse 1, I saw the Lord. I'm not sure what all was in his heart. But I do believe with all of my heart with the eye of our faith, we can see the Lord. And we're looking at somebody, wow, she got her hair done Saturday, didn't she? Oh look, she got a new dress. Wow, well, my friend's got on a great new tie. And while we are consumed with that, we will not be able to worship. Why?
1: The focus is wrong.
0: I said, say, I saw the Lord. And until we get to a place where we come... To the house of God for worship. Having done some preparation. There's going to be a gap. In our worship. An active response to God. We come to church. And with the eye of faith. We see the Lord. And we're here to worship Him. We're here to respond to all that He is. With all that we are. You come to church to worship today. Only you can answer that in the Lord God. Holy, 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 verse 3, is the Lord of hosts. That's where worship begins. David, I think that's 262, isn't it? I want us to close with that this morning. Holy, holy, holy was the message of the seraphim. I want that to be our message this morning. He is holy. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. And may God speak to our hearts, mine included, about what worship really is. May I add one more thing before we sing? Worship doesn't begin and end with me and you begins with the Lord. It's not about me. It's not about you. Now I know some folks here probably don't believe that. Well, it's worship. It's about me. Ask Isaiah. Worship begins and continues when we see the risen Lord. That's where it is. Uh, let me press this a little bit. It's just next to my heart. It's in my soul. just comes out the pores of my skin sometimes. Sometimes people will say, and I've alluded to this already, sometimes somebody's going to say, I didn't get much out of it. And my question, as quick as a wink, when I hear that is, who said you were supposed to? Tell me that. Who said you were supposed to? Give me a verse that says that. We are to worship God. He is to be the recipient of our praise, our worship, our testimony, our prayers, our gifts. He is the recipient. This is not taking place for the preacher. It's not taking place for those of you sitting in the pew either. This is about God. And until we get it, and until we hold on to that truth, and believe it, and act on it, Saturday night and before we get to church, until we do that, we're not going to have much worship at Wake Chapel Church. We're going to have a service when we go to worship. So my question is, what do you want? You want a service that's all about you? I don't think you do. To worship Him. Service is drawing to a close, but your worship doesn't have to. I pray you will leave worshiping this morning. Just try it. Don't make any comments that you make to your friends this morning about you. Say something as a testimony to the Lord, to His mercy, to His grace. Just try. It. Let your worship continue. Edwin is our deacon of the day, and is going to come and pray for us and dismiss us, and we will sing. God be with you till we meet again after he prays. But please, on this Sunday morning, don't let singing "God be with you till we meet again" take you away from my gentle request. Make your comments about the Lord God as you leave today. Edwin, pray for us,
1: please. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time to come together to worship you, to ascribe to you the worth that you were due. Help us to remember that. Thank you for allowing us to have a country that we can do that. We can come together. We can worship you freely. As we go from here, this time of worship together, we can worship during the week. We also have some missionary work to do during the week ourselves. We want to... Think about the missionaries that we, we support this church. I'm extremely privileged to be able to say that just 30 minutes ago, I was able to talk to somebody about a missionary who's my brother. Um, that's a privilege. Not many people can do that. Um, and that's an amazing thing. This week, though, we want to think about uh, some other missionaries who are serving uh, in Africa. Uh, John and Marilyn Asma, they have two sons. We pray that you will bless them, that you will help them, that you will provide for them. Um, They are uh, dealing with some issues that they need uh, to get resolved, and we we hope that that you are are there with them and, and providing for them. We just want to remember them, especially this week. We just thank you for all that you do. Please be with us, bless us, take care of us until we meet next week to worship you again. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord Almighty is holy. His glory fills the world.